Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We continue our reading through Luke's, uh, well, we call it his sequel. The sequel to the Gospel of Luke is the book of Acts by the same author. At this point in the book of Acts, Luke is even a companion to Paul on his second missionary journey. And we have learned that by seeing a shift in the pronouns of the writer. So Luke is with Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they come from Philippi to Thessalonica. The reading for this morning is Acts 17, verse 1 through 9. Let us pray. Our gracious God, now upon the occasion of the public reading of Scripture, it is our prayer that you would bless the hearing of that word, that by your Spirit and by faith we would recognize the authority of God herein, these words, that we would indeed give unto you, O Lord, all that is due to your authority, all that is due to your honor, and that you would give us, Father, far more than we can give to you, that you would give us grace, much grace, to not be hindered and being blessed by your word today. Oh, gracious Lord, if, even if any here are yet dead in their sins, dead in their trespasses, cut off from you under condemnation and wrath. If it pleases you, Lord, according to your purpose and election, even come today to save sinners. For your kingdom is a kingdom of salvation. We ask and pray all this to your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of God. Somebody please name their son Jason. Please. Beloved, this man is used of the Lord, blessed of the Lord. 
The Sermon on the Mount tells us that this Jason is among the most blessed of men. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ has turned the world upside down. Or to say it better, the gospel of Jesus Christ has turned the world upside right. But some people are so committed to keeping things the way they are, they don't want things to become what they should be. Don't be found in their number. They don't want heaven and earth to be united. Keep everything the way it is. They don't want the kingdom of God's salvation to arrive. They don't want it to advance in their own cities. This is exactly what happened in Thessalonica. And you are right to think that this is the same Thessalonica to which Paul wrote two letters. We will quote from one yet this morning. As the apostle travels west out of Philippi, he arrives in Thessalonica with Silas and Timothy at his side, and presumably Luke. Unlike Philippi, however, there is a synagogue of the Jews in Thessalonica. Paul immediately begins attending their weekly meetings. For three Sabbath days in a row, Paul reasons in the synagogue with the Jews using the Old Testament scriptures. The New Testament was not yet in his hand. It was in his pen, not on paper. So the scriptures spoken of here are the 39 books of the Old Testament. Paul carefully proves from the Old Testament scriptures how the Messiah, the Christ, had to first suffer and then rise from the dead. It was the only way sins could be taken away. It was the only way the works of the devil could be destroyed. The Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. A second Adam had to come. A new covenant head had to come. One who was in the form of God had to take the form of a servant, becoming obedient in our human nature to the point of death, the death on a cross. Only then could this new covenant head be exalted and secure a place in glory for all who are in covenant with him, in covenant with his obedience by faith. So Paul shows the Jews everything I just put in a capsule. He shows them over three Sabbath days in their synagogue, shows them that the sufferings of Christ had to come before the resurrection glory of Christ. Man's obedience had to be completed first. Man's sin had to be put to death. Only then could man set his foot in the life-giving glory of the Spirit, the new creation. And Jesus has the first foot in that glory for our human nature. All this was accomplished in Christ And Paul shows it to have always been the plan, always been the promise of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, some of the Jews of Thessalonica, they immediately believe Paul, and they put their faith and hope in Jesus as Son of God and great high priest. 
They rejoice that all their sins are forgiven in Christ. They rejoice that the fullness of time has come in Christ. They rejoice that they will now be delivered from the wrath to come by Christ. They will not perish on Judgment Day. Some of the Jews in Thessalonica believe, but not all the Jews of Thessalonica rejoiced. Many Jews there, our text says, raged with jealousy. They saw their fellow Jews rejoicing together with pagan Gentiles, rejoicing in the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, and this enraged them. So the unbelieving Jews of Thessalonica embraced an accusation against Paul that the unbelieving Gentiles of Thessalonica were also happy to embrace. What a strange union. And what is this accusation that both unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles in Thessalonica embraced? Verse 6, that these proclaimers of Christ have turned the world upside down. Now, it is an unexpected thing that the Jews of Thessalonica would be the ones to first make this accusation and then sell it to the Gentiles. It is unexpected because the Jews, by God's grace, came into existence as a people for the very purpose of turning the world upside down. And now they're scandalized by it. In Genesis twenty-two seventeen, God said to Abraham, Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Beloved, that is the language of worldwide dominion. Your offspring, Abraham, shall possess the gates of their enemies. Your offspring shall bless all the nations of the earth. That is worldwide dominion. Not a dominion like that which the Gentiles dream of, military power, control of borders, oppression, taxation to the max, not that kind of dominion. Now, Genesis 22 speaks of a dominion of divine blessing through an offspring of Abraham. So understand this. Long before the birth of Christ, the worldwide dominion of Christ was a promise given to the Jews. And everything about the Jews that was revealed to them through Moses and the prophets was about the promise of this worldwide dominion through this Messiah, this Christ. By this promise, ancient Judaism brought about a radical, world-shifting advancement in the liberation of sinful man. Satan's kingdom was already being struck with a blow because ancient Judaism desacralized both the natural world and the state by revealing that neither of those two could deliver blessedness upon the nations. 
By the covenant with Abraham and by the law of Moses, ancient Judaism revealed that worshiping created things was idolatry and thus cursed of God. Whenever the people of Israel were godly, which was not often, (laughs) but whenever they were godly, they testified to pharaohs and to kings that the state was not divine, and they testified to witch doctors and pagan priests that trees, rocks, birds were no mediators of divine blessing. This testimony from Israel to the world, because of a promise that was made to them and a law that was given to them, This testimony was world-shifting. Then the gospel came in its fullness. Now, the gospel, of course, was already preached even before Adam's first birthday. And that's why Paul can go to the Old Testament scriptures and show them that Christ is is being proclaimed all along. But when Christ was born... When Christ died, when Christ was raised, the gospel of Jesus Christ was fully open to us. And the world was not just shifted, it was turned upside down. Everything the prophets of Israel foretold came to pass. The mystery of godliness appeared. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's an early Christian hymn. It's recorded in Paul's letter to Timothy, chapter 3, 16. The Son of God, who is the mystery of godliness, appeared in our own nature. Our Lord Jesus Christ, born of Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. On the third day, he rose again from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God Almighty. And ever since this enthronement, you can read about it in Daniel chapter 7. It was prophesied even then. I'm sure Paul used that passage many times. Ever since this enthronement of Jesus at the right hand of God in our human nature, repentance for the forgiveness of sins has been proclaimed in his name among the nations of the earth, and it has turned the world upside down. Dominion always does that. As this proclamation of forgiveness has gone forth, it has shaken the earth. People from all nations all over the earth have been abandoning superstitions because the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to the nations in Jesus' name. Abandoning slavery to counterfeit gods. Abandoning the fear and dread of death. Abandoning blind devotion to the state. Abandoning godless lives of loveless selfishness. Because, in Jesus' name, the the forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to the nations. Ever since that proclamation has gone forth, that God in Christ is forgiving sins, people have been crowding into the kingdom of God. And this has turned the world upside down. But, but, there are still many people who do not want the world turned upside down. These small-minded people 
who are blinded by the powers of this present darkness. They want a predictable world. I was once among them. Because in a predictable world, you can make money. In a predictable world, you can gain more and more of the comforts of that world. In a predictable world, you can learn how to be respected. In a predictable world, you can learn how to grease the gears of power. In a predictable world, you can manage the gods because they are, after all, your own creation. Don't overlook this. The Jews in Thessalonica and the pagans do not like what is coming. They do not like this new dominion they see being taken right before their eyes. The gospel of Jesus Christ, however, does not promise a predictable world. It promises the world to come. Which would you take? A predictable world that leaves you under condemnation, upon which you are swept away into judgment, or the world to come, opened even now for those in your flesh and bone, for people like you in flesh and bone, by Jesus Christ. You can only have one. You cannot have both. Jesus said it's impossible. Don't be deceived. Don't tell yourself, I'll have both. You'll hate one and love the other. You can't have both. The gospel of Jesus Christ promises a heavenly world opened to man only by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A heavenly world where Jesus, the guardian, and the defender, and the savior, and the lover of his people, where he is already seated in that heavenly world, in glory. His resurrection and ascension so firmly sets the promise of the age to come in the hearts of his people. They no longer need the friendship of the world. Did you know that your apostle James says that friendship with the world is adultery? Yet you are being trained all the time by books and Christian bookstores to make friends with the world. It's the last thing the world needs. They need somebody who's a contrarian to its own ambitions with grace and truth, just like their Savior. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ set so firmly in the hearts of his people, his promise of an age to come, they no longer cling to the world. They gladly lose their place in the world to gain a world they can never lose. But those who still belong to this world, they are not happy to see others leave it. Because every time a Christian forsakes this world, because they have seen the glory of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, Every time, the world's confidence is shaken in itself to see that departure. When the world sees a believer die for Christ, or more common, sees a believer begin to live for Christ, 
The worldly sees that and feels the inherent instability of this world shaking underneath them. Devotion to Christ shows this world to be less valuable. And those who love this world rage when their greatest investment loses some of its value because others are not joining them in the worship of the world, in the love of the world, in the friendship of the world. And those who love this world rage and rage and rage, and we see it here in Thessalonica. All, look at the Jews in Thessalonica. They are raging with jealousy, our text says. So much so, they get the Gentiles of the city to rage with them. That's the first time they probably put any effort into evangelism. And it was only to bring other men closer to their own condemnation. This integration of the angry Jews with the angry Gentiles is fascinating. It happens again and again. We've already seen it in Acts 14. It happens even after the apostolic period. After the last bit of ink is dried on the apostolic scripture, this integration continues. Listen to the description of the death of Polycarp, who was the Christian bishop of Smyrna a disciple of the Apostle John. Polycarp was burned at the stake in Smyrna around 155 AD. In an ancient book recently referred to me, thank you, The Martyrdom of Polycarp, here is the description of his death. The proconsul, which is the local magistrate, sent his herald to proclaim in the midst of the stadium three times Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Stadium's full. The document continues. This proclamation having been made by the herald, the whole multitude, both of the heathen and the Jews, who dwelt at Smyrna, cried out with uncontrollable fury and in a loud voice, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, they said. This document comes from around 200 AD. Jews and heathen together, eager to burn Polycarp because he is the destroyer of our gods. I commend to you a book by Larry Hurtado by the same title. He took it from this booklet, The Martyrdom of Polycarp, The Destroyer of Our Gods. It's the history of Christianity in the early church leveling the idolatries of the nations as Christ takes dominion of his elect. What an integration. Angry Jews, angry Gentiles. How can it be that the Jews and the heathen are united in this rage? Well, it's a very simple reason they are united. It's because the Jews had, by and large, heathenized Judaism. The Jews, by and large, had paganized the Jewish religion. There was no fault in the revealed religion that God gave Abraham and his children and Moses. No errors in it, but the errors in man. And the Jews had paganized their religion. 
They had become just like the Gentiles. That's why they can so easily unite with the Gentiles in this rage. They had perverted biblical religion and had come to seek their righteousness in their own works. Though all the religious terms were different, the Jews had the same impulse as the pagans. It's the impulse of the flesh without the spirit. Enmity against God through the exaltation of the man. The Jews had the same impulse as the pagans, leveraging your gods by your own works and performance. Such a religion needs no savior. It needs no real mercy. It needs not the eternal son of God in human flesh. In that religion, man is his own savior all the day long. And of course, it ends with no salvation but condemnation. Here's how Paul explains in another place what happened to his fellow Jews. Romans 9.30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Then a few verses later, Paul says this to his fellow Jews. They have a zeal for God. So do the heathen, by the way. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Beloved, it is not difficult to understand how many of the Jews could be so angry with Jesus that they put him to death. The Lord and giver of life, they put him to death because Jesus said things that did not honor the righteousness the Jews really wanted honored, which was their own righteousness. He said things like this. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. He said that to the Jews. And they burned red hot because he was not polishing the righteousness they wanted polished, which was their own religious works. In another place, Jesus said to the Jews, Woe to you, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Luke eleven fifty two. Well, this brings us to our apostles' later letter back to the church in Thessalonica. After escaping from Thessalonica and moving on to Berea, Paul wrote a letter back to this new church. Here's what he said in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are, that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. 
The Jews, Paul says, oppose all mankind. What could that mean? It means simply this. The Jews do not want to see the Gentiles brought into the kingdom of God through simple faith in Jesus Christ especially if, as they have worked so hard to build up their religious resumes. They've, they've built such a great religious resume, it's 800 pages longer than it needed to be. Beloved, they oppose all mankind, even as they unite with the Gentiles in rage against Paul. So what do self-righteous religious men do when their world of righteousness gets turned upside down? They retaliate. They pour hate and even violence on Christ's body to tell themselves Christ is worth nothing. They even say, look how weak this Christ they speak of really is. We arrest them and they can't escape. We throw rocks on them and they die. We cut off their heads and they die. We drive them out of their cities and they run. Look how weak this risen Christ they speak of really is. He is powerless. What they seem to forget is that Christ himself has already traveled this way of suffering. He has already traveled down the road of sorrow and pain and misery, and in the end it led to glory. Christ could have retaliated when he was on the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, But he did not. Christ could retaliate even now in Thessalonica. He could put an end to this mob of rage. But he did not. Why? Is it because Jesus is no king at all? Is that why he does not retaliate against those who lock up his servants? Is it because Jesus has no authority at all or no power at all? No, Jesus does not retaliate because he is a very different kind of king than Caesar. A king very different than every Caesar wannabe who has ever lived. Jesus is a king of mercy, not a king of condemnation. This is the reign of his mercy, the reign of his judgment and everlasting mercy will come in a day at the end. But today is the reign of his mercy. He's calling all men everywhere to reject your pride in your own righteousness and come by faith, simple faith, and cling to Jesus Christ as your only hope for reconciliation with God. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. One final point, then, of application from this message to you. Beloved, what do you want the kingdom of God's salvation to do in this city? You live in a city, perhaps a village, perhaps a treehouse. What do you want this kingdom of God's salvation to do in your city? 
Do you want the kingdom of God's salvation simply to tell you that you are one of the good people? Is that how you want your Christianity to work in and around your life, in and around your church? That you're one of the good people? That, of course, you're the, you're the very kind of people that God would keep from judgment when he comes. Is that what you want your Christianity to, to tell you and the world? Or do you want this kingdom of salvation to tell the truth? That you are a wretched sinner saved by grace through the sufferings and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that that puts you in a very common place with every other wretched sinner who's yet to be saved by grace. Be very, very aware that the paganization of Christianity is afoot. It has been afoot since the very beginning because the father of lies has sown this into the fleshly, sinful heart of man. Even Christianity can be paganized where it simply becomes a mask by which we tell ourselves we are the good people in the world and anybody who's not behind the mask with us are the bad people. It stops speaking of the wisdom and the power of the cross. It stops rejoicing over grace. It rejoices over politics. It rejoices over culture. It rejoices over social justice. It rejoices over all these false saviors that though men cling to them, they will carry them to hell. Beloved, Paul himself wrote in Romans 11 that just as the Lord removed the Jews from the tree of salvation and engrafted the Gentiles, he will, if we fall into unbelief, he will remove us even if we have a new church. He will snuff the lampstand if we fail to preach the gospel, if we settle into a paganized Christianity that simply applauds us because we are the good people. This apostle in his last letter said, I am the worst of sinners. (coughs) I hope you get that mature in the gospel when you get old. Let us pray. Gracious God, we pray that you would indeed stamp upon our hearts the truth of this kingdom of salvation, (coughs) that we would see right here again before our eyes in your word that our King Jesus does not retaliate because he is in his session of mercy. He is proclaiming the repentance unto forgiveness of sins to all the nations of the earth. Oh, Father, we pray that you would chasten any of us who have been adrift, who have begun to fashion a Christianity that is pagan, for it boasts in some cultural formation or some political formation or some credentialed or educational or literary or social justice formation. 
Oh, Lord, forgive us. We recognize that this drift is not because of anything to do with revealed religion. It is because of the sinful heart of man that can scarcely touch even the best of things, your holy good law, without distortion. How desperately we need you every hour. Renew us, we pray, in the very zeal we see in the Apostle Paul. To not go into a city to seek alliances with men who have rearranged the world in a way we find attractive, but goes into the city preaching Christ, who's the only one who has opened the world to come. Persuade us anew, O Spirit, that this world is passing away. The world above is forever, where Christ lives and rules forever. May his dominion be everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen.